one person reads that memo and they think, holy cow, these Trump people are lunatics. How in the world was that guy at the NSC? Whereas a whole other group of people go, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe this is one person in the Trump administration who actually understands what is really going on. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined in the studio by Elias Grohl and Jonna Winter. Elias is a staff writer at Foreign Policy covering cyberspace and its conflicts and controversy, and Jana is an investigative reporter based in Washington, D.C., and a foreign policy contributor. She worked previously as a national security reporter at The Intercept and breaking news investigative reporter for foxnews.com. And they are the co-authors of a recent foreign policy exclusive published last week on the memo that blew up the NSC. Also joining us on Skype today is Mike Cernovich. Mike is a national security journalist, a lawyer, documentary filmmaker, and best-selling author of Guerrilla Mindset. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So I actually wanted to start off with Mike. You know, what was your reaction to our story in the NSC memo? You seemed upset that actually that, that we got it and you didn't. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit annoying because all I get accused of a lot of um, people being leakers who aren't. And then I'm thinking, well, if people if these are the people leaking to me, why is it that you guys got that memo and I didn't? So Did it you was ask. I, this is Jonna. Hi. Oh, hi. Yeah, it, it, I, I, I mean, Sharon asked me to ask. She was like, can you get the memo? And then bothered me again. Can you get the memo? Who is the memo? I mean, did you try to ask around for the memo? I put the word out that I wanted the memo, but it, it never got to me, which is which is fine. But, I, you know, a lot I played that up a little bit just to to have fun, because a lot of what I do is, you know, I, I don't make things up. I'm, you know, truthfully report what I hear and everything. But I, I like to have a little bit of fun, too. So I was I, I like to create a little theatrics like, oh, look at them. They got the memo and I didn't. They're winning. It's a, kind of a horse race sort of thing. Pe- people find that fun and I find it fun to do also. Well, on a serious note, Mike, I think what's sort of interesting about the current time period is you clearly do have a window into parts of the NSC, which has created this sort of huge brouhaha within the National Security Council that you're getting this information you know, you, you have led a very sort of campaign against McMaster. I mean, what? where do you see your role in the process between reporting and actually trying to move where the NSC is going? Yeah, that's a difficult question. What is the line between activism and journalism? It isn't a line that I know that's clear, and it's certainly um, – not a line that I even have fully defined for myself. But my main issue with McMaster is that he's a typical traditional general who thinks we need more tanks. We need tanks in Afghanistan. We need more tanks in Syria. We need tanks in Venezuela. So I view it as my job to not have another war in America. So in that sense, I am an activist and I am trying to push back against the pro-war elements within uh, the NSC and the administration generally. And do you feel that the people who are talking to you, meaning your sources, is that their motivation as well? That You know, it's an interesting thing because I'd never done, um, you know, the kind of reporting that I've been doing recently. And what you find out are that there's this mythos about what is a source and you read the newspaper and sources tell you this. And you realize a source is just a human being. Sometimes they're telling you things that you might think is BS. In fact, I've been given stuff that I knew was BS and I didn't run it. And other times, you know, one one time I remember I had a conversation. I go, look, who are you trying to get fired? Because I, I, this is obviously wasn't necessarily one of the McMaster things. But I sometimes you can tell that people are 
uh, trying to move pieces on the chessboard, and then that's all the source is, another human being with their own interests and their own agendas, and then you trying to figure out what is true and what isn't true, and are you being played, and are you merely being a stenographer, or are you doing actual analysis? It's, it's, it's tricky. There's more, you know, I like to make fun of the fake news media and whatnot, but it's a lot harder than people on the outside might suspect. That's interesting. I mean, let's talk about the memo itself, because it's interesting because people's reaction to it is so much guided by what they think of it. I mean, some people on Twitter sort of embrace it as everything it's saying is true, or people just say, you know, it's just proof of the craziness that's it's going proof on. Proof of whatever you want it to be. So, I mean, John, why don't you talk about that a little bit, sort of the reaction to it? I think I've never seen such opposite reaction about the same thing. Um, this is everything I told you about. The administration, super crazy. Here's evidence of it. Or here's evidence of, gosh, anything, of why bankers are out to get us, why transgender bathrooms are bad. Um, or this is a really well put together memo that's hidden, you know, underneath a lot of crazy about Trump not being able to get his comm strategy together and being under attack by everyone. I think there's also the element, of course, about you, Mike, um, where, you know, the specter of who you're talking to and what's being said um, has, according to my sources, apparently taken over like a lot of McMaster's day. And so the question is, you know, is that really no offense, respectfully? Like, is, is that what McMaster should be doing all day thinking about you? Um, I I don't know. Um, I'm going to say no, no again, <laughs> with respectfully, like, uh, no. So I think some people found this as evidence of McMaster not being focused on the right thing. I mean, there was a lot to read in this memo. And in 3,500 words, you could basically take one sentence and it'll prove everything you've ever wanted in life and and hope to prove about this administration. Yeah, I actually, that's kind of one of my talking points is why does McMaster care so much about me? You know, this guy needs to have other priorities. The flip side to that is I'm actually, I'm very good at what I do in, in terms of, you know, psychological warfare and everything like that. And I'm very good at getting people like McMaster interested in me. Again, Chuck Todd is reading my tweet to McMaster on Meet the Press. That's a really kind of like weird, weird Chuck thing. Chuck Todd's tweet about the memo was like extreme. Yeah. Uh. yeah and, and the memo was a powerful thing. And that's why I was so glad to see the, the memo released in full because – you're right. We're, we're living in what Scott Adams calls, you know, two movies. One person reads that memo and they think, holy cow, these Trump people are lunatics. How in the world was that guy at the NSC? Whereas a whole other group of people go, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe this is one person in the Trump administration who actually understands what is really going on. And th that's the fascinating time we live in right now where people are subjectively – because I, honestly, we don't have an, enough of a conversation about the subjective nature of reality and how reality outside of the physical laws is largely socially constructed. And if you socially construct a reality um, one way, you're going to interpret it completely differently. So I, I found that fascinating. My, my main beef with the guy getting fired was – you need diversity of viewpoint in the NSC, you even if you think that memo is crazy. And a lot of people do. I personally enjoyed it and found it quite fun. But you need somebody in the room who's saying these kind of things. And then, of course, you need people who are saying, actually, I think this is terrible and you're really wrong and, and get that synthesis going on. 
Elias, you look like you had something to say on this topic. Yeah, Mike, so thanks for coming on the show, man. And after we published our story, you went live on um, Periscope, I think it was, and, and you said that— We all watched this in the newsroom, Yeah, Mike, we, had a, we had a lot of fun watching you after we published. It was great. And uh, you said that you would be willing to take McMaster's job uh, to become the new national security advisor should he step down, and that you would revolutionize the job with mimetic warfare, I think was the phrase that you used. What did you, what did you mean by that when you went on air? and said you were going to revolutionize the job of national security advisor with mimetic warfare. Well, to get back to what your colleague was saying, why in the heck is H.R. McMaster worried about Mike Cernovich, some guy in a spare bedroom with his eight-month-old daughter on his lap? How is it that I'm able to do that? And to me, that's the meta question of all of this is that clearly I know what I'm doing. So by respectfully, the like it's a little still, even if you're really good at what you're doing, it's still weird that he's like focused on you all the time. Oh, no, I, I completely know that's the whole point, though. But the meta conversation is that clearly I'm good at whatever it is that I do. And what I do is I do wage um, psychological warfare using um, medic warfare techniques. And we need to do that. I've said if we want to beat ISIS, you attack it in the way that you would think of a brand. You attack a brand. How do you lower their status? So I've said that my plan would include I would want Nassim Taleb, uh, um, uh, Robert Cialdini, Scott Adams, an Islamic scholar, a, a Sharia a scholar, and I would want to get everybody in the same room and think, what kind of propaganda could we use and create that would – now, I think technically propaganda is illegal. That's a different conversation. But I would say, what kind of propaganda can we use to prevent all these young men from becoming radicalized? How can we attack the idea of ISIS to call the action? Now, a lot of people think that sounds crazy, but the Daily Mail did an article on how they are following these Joseph Campbell-esque, the hero of a thousand journeys. They are tapping into these archetypes of the, that primarily appeal to men. And I would want to say, well, how can we jam up these archetypes? Let's talk then about the role. I mean, Trump keeps saying that McMaster has his support, that he's a friend. I mean, where do you think Trump comes down in all this? I mean, why then if – why is McMaster still the national security advisor? Oh, McMaster is definitely safe. Um, there's there's no question about that. You, you, you do think that, that he's safe for the like, – what, whatever the long haul yeah. is in this administration, you know, maybe six more weeks? Well, yeah, I mean, Mooch was safe. Um, I tweeted out anybody who thinks Mooch isn't safe is a moron. And then he's th three days later fired. And it was 100 percent true that when I tweeted that that was true. So, of course, but I think uh, isn't that what everything safe, is now? Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it is a wild time. So McMaster's safe because General Kelly has his back and you can't show weakness. So if, if McMaster were removed, then it would it would add to the mythos and the legend of me and, and people like me. So you don't want to you don't want to encourage that. I think he's safe at least for a couple more months. But if your goal is Jada, oh, I'm sorry to keep jumping in. If you think I mean, if your goal is to put this pressure on McMaster, then don't you feel it's sort of self-defeating in nature if he's not going to be pulled because then it would make it look like you had won? Like, is there, do you know what I'm saying? The purge ended. There, there, McMaster had a big purge plan and General Kelly said, this is over. I don't know what kind of war path you're on, but you got to quit firing everybody who's been pro-Trump for a, a long time. So the purge definitely ended. So it was a stalemate uh, for sure. And you had reported that the purge had been ended or at least had been a moratorium on the purge. Mm -hmm. So that that's a definite that's a definite positive. It was so 
McMaster is safe, I think, at least for a couple months. I think he'll try to do the purge again. So how long will the purge end? I don't know. But now people know that there there will be a reaction from you know other sources of people who are perceived as being pro-Trump are purged from the NSC. How many allies do you think you have left on the NSC right now? Ooh, good question. Uh, I don't know that I have any, actually. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I ever had allies on the NSC. There, um, a lot of my sources, actually, that I got the information from weren't, weren't in, on the NSC. So a couple people have gotten framed for being my sources, which is like a tricky situation because if I go, oh, they're not my sources, well, that's exactly what you would say if, if they weren't your sources. But um, a lot of stuff that I get is, pa- is passed through, I call it. So I don't even know the names of the people because I'm usually getting stuff from an intermediary, and I prefer it that way myself. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk. I mean, it seems like so much, whether it's the memo or what's going on the NSC, it it is sort of um, the way these are being played out on social media. Let's talk about Charlottesville for a second, where there was a lot of pressure and a lot of criticism on President Trump over the weekend for not coming out and specifically criticizing the KKK or neo-Nazis that he did today in in his speech. I mean, what was your reaction to both the conflict over the weekend and then to Trump's remarks today? Yeah, I certainly viewed what happened in Charlottesville as being an act of domestic terrorism, which I always anticipated was going to happen. There have been these melee battles, the battle for Berkeley. I'd anticipated radicalization by the far left and by the far right for a while. Trump's statement on Saturday, he, you know, he'd called out both sides. He dis- the problem is, from Trump's perspective, he's disavowed these David Duke people forever. But the only way David Duke can be relevant is by saying he's a Trump supporter. So how many, you know, I think I counted one time it's like 22 times Trump had disavowed David Duke and the KKK and all these guys. So if you're doing this Tom strategy, you're going to say, well, are you going to let these people be penned on you again when you completely had nothing to do with it? That That's challenging. But the critique is that you think white supremacists had nothing to do with what happened at Charlottesville. Oh, no, they totally that was domestic terrorism. So why couldn't he just come out and say it? It doesn't really matter, I think. You know, how many times? If he said it 22 times, he mentioned David Duke or, or whatever. Um, this is like in response to something that happens to what, I mean, you agree is, was an act of domestic terrorism. So why on earth would anyone advise the president, calm strategy-wise, to not say like, you know, I condemn whatever the hell just happened in this moment and, you know, would have gotten a lot of just... I don't know, not even understanding, but it wouldn't be such a big deal if he just called out what happened and who was involved. So if it was white supremacists, he should have said that initially instead of taking another news cycle in 48 hours to say it today. Well, and that's the critique. And the critique is that he said it today. And now people are saying, well, he should have said it soon enough. And he didn't take questions after there. There's there's never I don't see Trump ever making a statement no matter what he says, where people go, wow. I mean, he opened a federal investigation. There, There is now a federal civil rights investigation to all this stuff. And that's getting buried by the fact that, well, he should have taken more questions or he should have done this. It's like, for crying out loud, the feds are going to be all up in their the white supremacist's mess. And this is very serious. People are going to go to prison for this kind of stuff. But that's the buried lead now. If it were Obama, they would say, well, Obama opens federal civil rights investigation into white supremacy groups. This is great. I'm glad that he did. He's taken a stand. When Trump does that, they go, well, let's pretend that didn't happen. Let's just talk about how he didn't do it soon enough or um, uh, uh, punctuational enough. So it's a, it's a tough thing. That's not entirely true, though. I mean, just 
as backstory, like I used to cover mass shootings for like, I mean, more than a decade. And every single time there was one under Obama, he would come out and say, our prayers are with you or something like that. It doesn't matter how much he talked about gun reform. It doesn't matter how much the NRA came out. Like his message was always, I mean, people still gave him a lot of grief because he came out with the hopes and prayers business every single time and nothing happened. So just as perspective, I mean, other administrations also get a lot of crap after these kind of events. Oh, for sure. This, I, it's no easy thing there. Obama got it bad from um, the right wing media. Nothing he did was ever good enough. Things were spun out of his control. I mean, if the guy even claimed that the call to prayer was a beautiful thing, then that's proof that it's, it's a nasty world out there. A hundred percent. That's why people are getting radicalized and uh, everybody needs to call out all the, the political violence and uh, from Antifa, from the white supremacist thing. But the the needle, the thread for anybody is that everybody's looking for you to slip up, especially if you're Trump. So it, it's a big challenge. It's a high him. profile position. I mean, it's president. So, you well, know, yeah. there, there's going to be eyes on you. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not defending um, necessarily Trump's statement on Saturday. I would have worded it differently if I were him. And I would call out a lot of people on the right, for example, are upset that Trump has never the called out the Antifa kind of stuff, the battle for Berkeley kind of stuff, the the left wing thing. And, and then a lot of people would bring up, you know, Micah Johnson when he, you know, shoots police officers. Nobody's saying Obama was this one of your supporters. No, the, the, the big difference between Trump and Obama is that. Whenever some scumbag that Trump has disavowed does something, the media goes, well, this is one of your supporters. But we didn't see that happen with the mainstream media when Obama's supporters would do lunacy. And of course, the Scalise shooting was a, a departure and that Bernie Sanders actually had to disavow that from his supporter. That story kind of died pretty quickly, too. So. Again, the, the issue is that we need to hold I think that got play. I think Bernie coming out so soon after got a lot of play. And I think it was surprising and newsworthy. Oh no, it was great. But then, but then I mean, the news cycle died. We're not we're not hearing about the Scalise shooting anymore. It's it sort of it sort of played off. Whereas with Trump, they try to keep this stuff alive all the time. So I don't know. I guess my question then to you would be that how many times does Trump need to say that I don't like these people? And then my bigger question would be. The biggest event of these white supremacists, the biggest thing that they can do is get 500 people. Why do they get millions of dollars in free media coverage for what is ultimately a marginal movement? That's a good question. That's not the worst question. Uh, Elias, do you got, have you got some input in that? I don't have any input on that one, no. I'm curious. I mean, I'm, I, we can definitely address this issue. One thing I'm curious to hear from you, though, Mike, is how you – assess the position of Bannon in the White House at this point. I mean, you know, we, we're, we're really, what we're really talking about right now is this conflict between, you know, the sort of the more traditionalists, uh, the professionals, if you will, and then the upstarts, if you want to call them that, the Bannons of the world who seem to be more aligned with perhaps your worldview. And I'm curious now what you think of Bannon's position in the White House. There's some people leaking against Bannon now to try to, to generate momentum for Bannon's firing. Oh, yeah. The, the knives have always been out for Bannon. Kushner doesn't like him, but always viewed him as a threat. Uh, Gary Cohen, Dina Powell. Bannon has been laying very, very low, especially when all those magazine covers are coming out saying he was actually, you know, the genius. In terms of memetic warfare, even though maybe this wasn't intentional, 
But if I wanted to get rid of Bannon, I would have done exactly what a lot of media outlets were doing, which is to say Bannon is actually the brains behind Trump. Trump can't think without Bannon. That's genius mimetic warfare, and, and that drove a wedge. So Bannon is pretty much laying low, and any on any given day, he could be out. On any given day, he could stay. It's like that in the White House. But I would say McMaster right now is at least for the next – if I had to bet – Within the next two months, I would say Bannon and McMaster are both in. But if I had to ask who is safer, I would say McMaster is actually safer. I mean, I, I think this goes to the issue of the question that you were posing us as to how much Trump has to denounce these people in order to, in order for that denun- denunciation to actually be taken seriously. You know, a lot of people in Washington talk about these communications problems as actually uh, masking what's actually a more substantive policy-related dispute. And I think that that's what a lot of people are getting at when they're asking these questions of the White House is, you know, they're looking at folks like Bannon, his presence in the White House. And as much as Trump denounces these kinds of actions, they still look to the personnel around around the president and they say, look, these are people who have made common cause with, uh, if not these groups, at least some of these strains of thought. And then why should we take this denunciation seriously. And just as a side, isn't that what the point of the memo was to begin with? It's saying, like, no matter what he does, like, when he comes out and says something, no one believes anything that happens, and no matter what he says, which is going to be true of any president, you know, you're going to get a lot of things flung from either side. But it seems so divided in this case. What do you do now? That's a good question. But, Mike, Mike, I guess what I find so interesting about your views is you've come out as very much sort of anti-war. I mean, you're anti the Syria airstrikes. Um, that's your, your main criticism of McMaster, as you're saying, he's you know in favor of more tanks, more military intervention. But yet, if we look at the trajectory of the Trump administration so far, we did have the airstrikes in Syria. Um, we don't have movement yet on Afghanistan. Um, the U.S.-supported war in Yemen appears to be going strong. Um, there has been new numbers coming out saying that, you know, under Trump, there have been more drone strikes, more strikes in general. How do you feel, I mean, the Trump administration has done to date um, in terms of your views on that? And the $350 billion weapons deal with Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. I mean, certainly a lot of my talking points from the primaries and in the election, a lot of those are gone. I mean, uh, the way I look at it is there was a GOP debate where people were saying that we need to go to war with Russia because they invaded Turkey's airspace. But meanwhile, Turkey is a total dictatorship, a, a murderous regime. The journalists are being locked up there. You can't have a VPN in Turkey now, I think, is is their new rule. And they even came to America and beat up protesters, peaceful protesters. So th- the warmongering is the norm in America. The, the bombings and everything are the norm in America. And I, and I certainly don't like it. I think it'd be a lot worse under Hillary Clinton than it would be under Trump. But all that stuff, yeah, I've called it all out. I I definitely called out that arms deal with Saudi Arabia. The travel ban should have included Saudi Arabia. I have a a lot of problems with uh, the Trump's foreign policy position. You're associated with the alt-right. You have very anti-war views. In terms of your worldview, you know, if you look at the war in Afghanistan or the U.S.-supported war in Yemen, I mean, are you for withdrawing from all of that? I mean, how do you see sort of the end the end game there. You, you said something interesting, which, which is that I'm associated with the alt-right, which is unfortunate because for over a year I've been saying I'm not alt-right. Those guys are different. They're about different things. Right. When, okay. What are you about? I'm, yeah. 
Well, no, but I mean, that's the broader point, though. And that's why I empathize with Trump's position, which is when the Nazi salute thing happened, I was like, this is insane. I can't believe this. And then they, they've been calling me a cuck ever since and and everything. And so the idea, though, is that even though I've completely said, man, I have nothing to do with these people, once the people think that you are, then that's how it's always going to be associated. But, but you uh, play to po- that extreme. Well, I, pl- I I swam in that water a year ago, and then I started to figure out that there were actually a lot of lunatics, and they weren't just cracking jokes. It wasn't the Dave Chappelle show where people are you know, trying to just be a little bit edgy, and I realized. So then I got out of it, and it, it's been about a year. But uh, the flip side of that is I talked to everybody. I, I talked to the left. I, I talked to the lunatics on both sides. So it, why? Because we're, we're – we're radical. Well, I don't consider you guys the lunatics. I'm I was talking. Ask, Thank do we you. fall in that camp or not? <laughs> like which lunatics are we? Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm talking about you know the real, you know the the scumbag dirtbag left kind of people that that sort of fracture. Where do you see yourself fitting into this debate then? There's going to be a in 2020 there'll be a realistic third party push with people like Tulsi Gabbard. There's going to be a big middle. So, what do you do with a guy or a gal or a transgender you know or everybody else? who says, well, I'm anti-interventionist, I'm anti-bailing out Wall Street, I think student loan debt is one is essentially indebted servitude of an entire generation of people stealing their hopes and dreams, but I'm also against politically correct culture and censoring people, you're, you're starting to see people occupy that territory, otherwise left-wing people like Dave Rubin, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, uh, they're starting to say, well, wait a minute, there's this, there's a different path between warmongering on both sides and, and hatred and identity politics. So you're going to see that fracture. Ultimately, I'm a, a, I was for Occupy Wall Street before that became um, taken over, which in my view was taken over by the deep state because you know Wall Street must be protected at all costs. I'm a pro-Occupy Wall Street guy against police misconduct, against the militarization of police misconduct. So these are a lot of kind of left-wing positions or whatever that means now. So left and right is collapsing. And so I call myself a populist and a nationalist. Do you see yourself in the long term or even medium term as a journalist in this? Or do you, I mean, do you think about running for office? Where, where do you see your role? It's a, it's a difficult, uh, difficult question. I see myself as a media person because if you ever do want to run for office, you do need to have a media platform. And that was why Trump won is he had his own media platforms. Bernie Sanders, there's actually a great essay on this by Naval Ravenkot called American Spring. And the future of elections are you'll have your own platforms to push out your own message, but you'll also be able to crowdfund donations, which Bernie did well. Uh, Trump did the media stuff well. So people break from the machines. In terms of running for office, I was going to, in the right race, I would run. But uh, if Dana Robacher had been Secretary of State, then I probably would have run in his district because it'd be a 10-way knife fight, and that's where somebody could come in. But I, I don't know. I mean, the journalism stuff is is interesting to find out, you know, what all is going on. But it is, and I think this is an issue journalists like you don't talk about enough. And I've I've had conversations with a lot of people. Is it's a lot harder than people think. To know, are you getting played? Are people feeding you bad information? Are people- is, yeah, no yeah. kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why do you Go think on. it took so long to get this damn story up? Um, I mean, you're not helping us and you're not helping yourself in terms of the journalism cause here, though, because you seem like a total, everything that you have said about, you know, the uh, 
journalism being harder than it looks and about play, you know, trying to figure out motivations of your sources, which doesn't necessarily mean that what they're saying isn't true. But like, who are they trying to get fired and where does that fit in? Is this why this is accurate? I mean, everything you've said, like we go through when we're, you know, looking at these stories. But the way that you come out on social media doesn't exactly show that you have these thoughts, which I kind of wish it would. I mean, we live in an era where nuance is kind of lost. And, you know, I'm, I'm as much a part of that as anybody else. And I've certainly done a lot of soul searching and it changed a lot of, you know, things over the years. I realized that if you make a bad joke, a tasteless joke and people aren't laughing, you think, oh, they really think that's serious, that, that can become an issue. So, yeah, they're, they're, my own rhetoric is being toned down and it has been toned down, but it, it takes a long time to find the right path. But, yeah, the... But in terms of if you're being played by people and played by sources, those are a big conversation, but it's also a conversation uh, that the media should have. So right now, the traditional media is right now, here we are, there's no fourth wall. And what I do is I sort of break the fourth wall. So I have had a lot of periscopes where I said, you know, people call me and I know that they're trolling me and they're trying to get me to say something dumb. And I bet that they're going to get me to say something wrong and then screenshot it and send it around. So I, I have had those conversations a lot in various videos. So how do you think about this website you're running right now called McMasterLeaks.com in which you're putting out all kinds of unsubstantiated information about a man who you admittedly say, you know, think sh that he should be pushed out of the administration for his views. Um, you're saying journalism is hard and we need to work hard at it, but it you're, run you're, running a you're running a website that's just leveling these... Uh, as far as we know, unfounded allegations uh, against this person who you also say you're trying to They're cover? a secondary source. Well, everything that I cover is cited. So I don't know. I don't monitor the comment section closely. But everything that I, I link to was cited to a mainstream publication. So, for example, the Associated Press story about how Mc, McMaster was um, denigrating Trump in front of, I think it was German um, diplomats. So all that stuff had been sourced from a traditional media outlet. So I, I'm playing it tight there. Now, a lot of people would say, is it journalistic to go after uh, one person in that way? And fair critique. Yeah, fair critique that I think it's a more difficult um, difficult question to answer. I don't think it's clearly yes or clearly no, but it, it's definitely what, you know, again, it goes to where's the line between activism? Where's the line between, you know, breaking a story? So I always ask people, would you break a big story about somebody that, you wanted to win the election. Would you break that story? And I think that's sort of the true test of journalism. Well, here, actually, I have a question I think a lot on of that. Us have. Okay, so, I mean, you have very strong views about McMaster and his policies. Would it be fair game to go, for instance, after his personal life, which things are starting to come out on that in terms of rumors? Is that is that fair game? And, and what, what should be the standards there? And I'm really asking that as a question. Well, there, it's a great question. And in terms of going after somebody's family, you know, wives, the, the way the media has gone after Mooch and his divorce and stuff, I definitely am not about that. But in terms of one of the rumors, which I'm not going to mention, I'll keep a class in your podcast. In terms of one of the – Thank you. <laughs> yeah. In terms of one of the things going on, there are circumstances where your personal behavior can lead to an OPSEC risk and can lead to a blackmail risk and can lead to a, a problems related to the job. And in that regard, those – issues should be um, on limits. But what I did find funny is I read a article from Jonathan Swain, who's actually quite good at Axios, 
where they were talking about a certain story that I was going to be on this week. And I go, actually, I wasn't going to say anything about that this week. I kind of said it one time and, and had moved on. So I think it's interesting that they were trying to get ahead of something that I wasn't even going to talk about. I, I know we all saw that. Um, do you think that was fair what they did? It was um, it was definitely I mean, what they said about me. Was that fair? No, about McMaster. This was from the morning newsletter that we're all talking about where they, they repeated the rumors that were going around or that were being pushed out. It's only substantiating them, you know, by reporting by, them, by reporting yeah. that you were going to say them. I, again, that's one of those interesting sort of recursive questions is if you're reporting on what somebody is saying, should you not report on what somebody's saying if you think it's an unfounded rumor? And in exactly. that they did say and, – and he did say, well, we don't think any of this is true. But then why – you've already it? said it. So it's like – I know. <laughs> it's – again, there, there's so much – uh, that's why I think that if, if people in journalism actually had more open-ended conversations with their audience and the readers – then respect for the media would increase if people realized how tricky it is and when do you cover something and when do you not cover something? Do, you know, do, do people encourage fanaticism by letting people know, hey, if you want to drive a car into somebody, then you will be world famous because we're all going to kind of be there covering it. These are, these are tough ethical questions. I mean, this rumor is a strange one, though, because you were on, a, you were on Alex Jones talking about this rumor, saying that this was about to be reported. And this was... This was or this was last month at some point that you that you made that statement. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, if I for the listeners who haven't heard of this rumor, you know, go to Axios and you can you can see it for yourself. Um, but it's it's like you were plugging this rumor a month ago and now you're now that we're doing something different. It's like you're planting the seed and then going back and saying, well, maybe not. It seems like you're trying to have it both ways a little bit here. Oh, no, I'm not walking that back. I believe what I reported was true. So, no, I'm not walking that back. I'm just saying that I'd been over it. Like, I'd, I'd kind of moved on, and I'm sort of over the McMaster stuff anyway because, in my view, he's in there for a couple more months and his purge of Trump people ended. So this is a great outcome. No, so I'm not walking back what I said. What I'm saying is that I was done talking about it. I wasn't going to talk about it anymore. Right. I was completely over it. And then I'm reading an article like, oh, yeah. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. I, I wasn't going to say anything about that. I was – I wasn't even going to say much about McMaster this week unless there was something really big that kind of hit because right now, I mean, if, if you want to look at it memetically, in terms of memetic warfare, the way I view it is the purge has stopped. That's a major win. But in victory, you have to know when to stop. So if I just keep going after this guy and antagonizing him, nothing else is going to happen from it. So then I look impotent and ineffective. So because of that, you have to um, know when to retreat and just say that was that was a good outcome and everybody should be happy. So does that mean you're done with McMaster for now? And if Who's so, next? Yeah. <laughs> and, and well, so two part question. Are you done with McMaster and what is next? And is it really about McMaster then? Is it about protecting the the sort of Trump loyalists that go back to the time of the, the campaign or transition, like those the ones who were named that, that we also reported on who were going to be purged? Oh, it, yeah, it's about um, an American first foreign policy that doesn't involve us invading other countries. With McMaster, it is not anything personal. He just he really loves war. He loves the conventional war where you line up your tanks and you get your tanks blowing people up and we're dropping bombs on people and everything. He, he loves that kind of stuff. I think he is, for the most part, a good person, which is a, a difficult thing for me 
to do what I did, it wasn't that I wasn't conflicted. I think he is like a lot of people is a good person with really bad ideas that are going to have very bad outcomes for the American people and for people across the world. And I'm tired of people across the world being killed and bombed. And I'm tired of us selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. And we all know that that was a Gary Cohen, you know, Dina kind of thing too. And a Jared Kushner supported it and everything. So, so I'm, I'm against all that. And in that regard, if you go to the, you know, the journalist activist dichotomy is I view it as journalism and that I am telling the truth. They are source stories. They are. I, I was the first person who was going to report on the big Saudi deal before I was on anybody's radar. I was like, I can't believe this is going to happen. And then sure enough, the associate press reporter on it. So in that regard, I am a journalist because I'm telling what is happening using sources, but I am an activist in that I do have a certain agenda and my agenda is to stop these interventionist wars. So then are you going after Jared next? I mean, I'm not recommending things. Um, oh, I mean, you, I mean you if never, that's what you know, you're against. I mean, who's who's well, your next target? Yeah, I mean, you never you never get to Ivanka's off limits, obviously, but there are some interesting things in the pipeline about Jared with some real estate deals and, and everything else going on. So I'm, I'm definitely looking into Jared Kushner's real estate financing. Wow. So we should look out, out from that, some reporting from you on that. Yeah, it, it's very expensive to do these, right? Because I'm trying to, f I'm tracing the real estate deals and you want to assess, well, how much was he paid? What were the deals? What were the mortgage values? What were similarly situated properties? Was he paid above market prices by anybody? Those are really expensive stories to do. It's, and yeah. super complicated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I've, I've, yeah, okay. Well, look, Mike, we would love to have you back on again to talk about journalism and ethics. That might be another good podcast. But um, thank you so much for joining us. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, and thanks. again, ER nerds, we love hearing from you. So if you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Please join us next time. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our global thinkers and backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.